Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very happy to have Stephen Allen on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Roaming Ghostland, The Final Days of East Germany. For those of you who don't know, and I suspect all of you do know, there was a place called East Germany until about 1990. It was a product of the Cold War, and it ended when the Cold War ended. But there was a very brief period between November 1989 and I believe October 1990 in which East Germany sort of existed and didn't exist. It was still there, and so were the East Germans, but everyone knew that it was going to pass out of existence. And Steve Allen was lucky enough to be there and to record his impressions. This is a terrific book in a number of ways. It artfully weaves Steve's own story in with the story of the then collapsing and disappearing East Germany. I highly recommend you read it. It's a great gift for anyone who is interested in becoming a foreign correspondent or wants to know anything about being a foreign correspondent because Steve tells us exactly what he did day to day and how difficult it was. So it's the story of Steve and the story of East Germany. And in that way, it makes for a terrific read. Without any further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Marshall. How are you doing today? I'm very well. Uh, I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Stephen Allen today, and we'll be discussing his book, Roaming Ghostland, The Final Days of East Germany. Uh, As everyone knows who listens to this podcast, I read these books before I do the interviews, and I have to say that I really enjoyed reading this book, and I highly recommend it to everyone. Um, It does something that's really marvelous, and we'll talk about this in the course of the interview because it weaves Stephen's story um, into the story of the collapsing East Germany. It's a wonderful device, and Steve brings it off perfectly, I think perfectly, really pitch perfectly. Uh, He has a real talent and flair for writing that most people that write in historical genres I I think don't, and I would include myself in that category. So I just wanted to begin by congratulating Stephen for writing a a really terrific and and readable book that, that is both about him and about uh, the, the, this really very interesting moment in history in this country that existed and then didn't exist. It was sort of, it's, it's a little bit, it's, it's Halloween tomorrow. I'm, I'm cognizant of that because my children are going to go run around. So it was really, he, he got to East Germany in the moment in which everyone living there was among the undead. You know, they, were, <laughs> they, were, they weren't quite Germ- West Germans yet. They weren't quite Germans and they weren't quite East. They really weren't, uh, they were neither fish nor fowl. And it was right. a particularly interesting moment at that time. So Steve, Stephen, why don't, why don't you uh, let me uh, ask you to begin, let, let, me, let me ask you to begin uh, the interview with telling uh, us a little bit about yourself, where you're from and where you grew up and how you became interested in these matters. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me as your guest. I, I greatly appreciate it. And um, I'm flattered that, that uh, you took the, the, took the time to read the book and um, that your listeners are, are so engaged in, in history. Um, I grew up in a town called Modesto, California. I was born in Minnesota, and my parents, like a lot of Midwesterners, uh, wanted to get out of Minnesota, and uh, they, uh, uh, you know, moved to California where I, I grew up. Um, my love of, of German and Germany uh, it was not my German was not my my language growing up, and I didn't have any relatives that spoke it. Um, however, I had a terrific teacher in high school, and I just fell in love with Germany, and I had the the good fortune to go over there. Uh, as a teenager, and it seemed like the countries I went to, everybody was speaking German, um, you know, Austria, Germany, Switzerland, and even uh, I was able to go to the Soviet Union back in 1976, and uh, that was uh, a second language for some people there as well. Um, I went on to uh, a career in journalism uh, after graduating from the University of California at Davis, where I, I majored in German and international studies, um, I had gone over to Germany, I think, four or five times before I went over uh, to report as a, as a foreign correspondent uh, in 1990. And uh, that's a little bit of my background. If you have any more questions or I missed anything, Marshall, no, please. That, that's fine. Um, how, how, let me ask you this, because uh, I think that um, you know, I used to work in journalism myself. What was it like, was it like deciding to become a journalist? Because that, that, that's kind of a difficult decision, isn't it? You know, I, I think, yeah. And today I think it's an even more frightening, difficult decision because of 
the enormous pressures on journalism as an industry and the whole uh, way the Internet has, has transformed, you know, modern journalism. I mean, it's – now would, it would be uh, – uh, I would not recommend anybody go into traditional <laughs> journalism today. But at the time, um, one of my first jobs was at a uh, at the Modesto Bee, which is a Sacramento, you know, McClatchy chain, and I got to cover high school sports, and they paid me. I think this was back in the in the late 70s. I was making $10 an hour, and I mm-hmm. thought, wow, that's pretty darn good for a, a kid. And I'm writing, and mm-hmm. I'm writing about something that I'm interested in, and that's really what gave me the bug uh, to, to become a journalist. And uh, the reason I didn't study journalism is I thought. I should know something about what I'm writing about, and my dream was always to be a foreign correspondent. That was that was really the uh, the mother load for me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, which is which is another reason why the book um, was so important for me to write, and mm-hmm. it, the culmination of everything I had been interested in with journalism. Mm-hmm. I see. Uh, um, that's a, it's a, it's a, it is a, it's a tough decision today. I counsel a lot of undergraduates who want to go into journalism, and as I say, I worked there myself in a very low capacity for some time, and, and yeah. uh, it, is a, it is a very tough game. But I, I want to um, talk about, I want to begin a discussion of, of the book by having you talk a little bit about your um, really very brave decision to leave your extraordinarily good day job in journalism right. in Florida and just jump ship and go to really where the action was in East Germany. And this was in 1990, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, the the wall came down in November of 1989. And uh, I thought to myself, my gosh, what, what an opportunity. Um, I speak German. I work for a great newspaper. My editor will see how brilliant I am <laughs> and, and, and value my ability to speak the language and know the culture, and he'll, he'll send me over if I only ask. Well, I went to my editor at the St. Pete Times, and he, he looked at me and, you know, kind of condescendingly said, uh, thanks but no thanks. Uh, and I was really devastated because I thought, wow, this is, this is an opportunity for me to, to help the paper but do something that I really – have dreamed of my whole life. Um, and so I was confronted with the decision, which was sit there and and stew over it and, you know, cover cover the, you know, the crime beat, uh, uh, cover city halls and, and pot-bellied redneck sheriffs and, and that whole thing, or, or, or roll the dice and try to get over to Europe and, and freelance. And so I was fortunate to have a – the St. Petersburg Times is a wonderful, wonderful newspaper, and uh, it feeds into a lot of, uh, a lot of the bigger papers, uh, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Times. So I had a lot of contacts in journalism, and they were very helpful and encouraging as I was plotting my exit <laughs> strategy uh, from the St. Pete Times. And so – uh, I was able to leave, and I had it all pretty much wired uh, by February of 1990, which was a couple months after the wall came down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so then you you just decided to go. But then there was another consideration, and this is part of what makes this book, which is really a sort of hybrid of genres, interesting. Very early on, you um, there's a woman involved. <laughs> yeah, uh, who is now my wife. Um, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I was born in 1960. So uh, I'm 49 right now, and it seems like every major decade of my life I do something, um, I I don't know how to put it, uh, something significant (laughs) and something life-changing. And so I was 29 when the wall came down, and I I don't know how many of your listeners or what the, the demographics are, but when you shift from one decade to another, 29 to 30, 39 to 40, and I'm 49 now. I'm going to turn 50 next year. I don't know. For me, it's just kind of a wake-up call and a, a chance to take an inventory of what am I doing with, with my life. And at the time uh, the wall came down, I was also living with a, a woman uh, that I had fallen in love with, and uh, I was really torn between 
going to Germany and not wanting to blow this relationship. Um, and fortunately, she was the one who encouraged me to go. And uh, I think it was at that point I knew I could marry her if she was secure enough to to encourage me to pursue my dream. I uh, uh, so uh, on the day I gave my notice, which was January second, nineteen ninety, when I quit my job, is the same day I proposed to her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's a that's a, that's a terrific uh, that's a terrific story. It's not it's not it's, a, it's I guess it's a good send off in a way. But also I want to tell our readers that this is, that um, Maureen is her name. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, Maureen comes and goes in the book, and it's a, it's a, again that's another terrific. We're never allowed to, just as you were never allowed to forget Maureen while you were in East Germany, we are never allowed to to forget that you're thinking about Maureen. I don't know if she listens yeah. to this, but yeah, you're, it's really uh, I enjoyed it whenever she came up. Um, so you uh, fly to um, uh, I guess someplace in West Germany, and then you're going to go into East Germany. Had you ever been to East Germany before? Um, I had been to East Berlin. Uh huh. Um, I think in 1985, so it was still uh, in, in the shadows of, of, of communism, and, and uh, it. Uh, when I was over there, I had uh, I was working at the Washington Post at the time, and I had gone over for a vacation, and I got one of the 24-hour, 12-hour visas that you could get, um, which really was a way of East Germany getting hard currency. Mm-hmm. You, you know, they charged you to to do that. And I met uh, a guy who was a poet and had uh, had um, smuggled out some of his poetry. And uh, uh, I hung out with him for the day. And uh, uh, we went to all the Western stores where they could, where you could buy heart, uh, buy Western goods. And mm-hmm. I I bought him a bottle of whiskey. And he thought <laughs> he thought he was in a John Wayne movie. And it was really a lot of fun. And um, it was so intriguing to me because it was so different from from uh, East or from West Berlin, and uh, it was almost like. And I felt this a lot when I was over there reporting because I was back and forth over the wall and into East Germany constantly. It was like moving between a black and white, a grainy black and white TV show or movie, and then suddenly coming into a full color, high def uh, picture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, I don't, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I had almost exactly the same experience in about 1984. I was taking the train from Leningrad, as it was then, to Helsinki, and I'd been in Russia for a little bit, and um, or in the Soviet Union for a number of months, and I, I don't, I, I'd kind of gotten used to seeing things in the kind of Soviet way. And I remember going into Helsinki, and Helsinki has no great shakes. I'm sorry to right. finish fans, but you know, it's a good, it's a nice place. Uh, but I remember going there and just thinking, somebody turned the lights on. <laughs> you know, like, right. It was amazing. Like, look at this. Somebody just turned the lights on. And there it is, civilization. I couldn't believe it. Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, no. Um, but uh, so I had I had been to uh, uh, East Berlin in, in 1985, and um, I had corresponded with this poet uh, several times. And each time I would – and I, I still have some of his letters – they were taped shut. You could tell they had been opened up mm-hmm. and resealed uh, by the uh, the Stasi, the, the secret police. And um, I spent a fair amount of time trying to look him up when I went back over and, and couldn't find him. Uh, like a lot of things, there was just so much upheaval. Um, but uh, I'd also been to the former uh, Soviet Union back in 1976, as I had mentioned, and uh, – there was always something very dark and compelling about the Eastern Bloc to me. Um, I, I don't know. It might just be a personality thing or, or what, but, you know, I, I still have never been to Greece or, you know, I, I just recently went to Italy, but I've never really been to the, uh, you know, the real sunny, popular European tourist places. I always tend to go to the <laughs> the gray, dark, dismal uh portions of, of Europe, and uh, I don't know why, but I've always been drawn to, to the Eastern Bloc. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they, they are compelling places. So when you arrived what, and you go over to uh, East Germany, what, what was the mood of people there in 1990, early 1990? Um, well, it, w- it was interesting. I know that uh, on the Western side, uh, there was enormous pressure to find, I mean, I needed to find a place to live. Um, and I spent a fair amount of time trying to decide, do I live in East Berlin 
where I could probably live very, very cheaply for a long time, or do I set up shop in West Berlin? And the primary reason I set up in West Berlin was because of the phone system and the, <laughs> and the, the infrastructure um, was so deficient in, in uh, East Germany and East Berlin. And these were back in the, the, the Internet days, uh, the pre-Internet days, where uh, you would send a story by the telephone line. Mm-hmm. Would plug your phone into a computer. I don't know. Some of your listeners may remember this, and you had to type in bods and bit rates and special codes. And each newspaper I sent stories to, I had to type in the special code, and then it, I would have to send it in pieces over telephone line. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would take a whole day for me sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, just the the technological infrastructure was a big line of demarcation or contrast between the the two mm-hmm. the two uh worlds um as far as the mood i think uh this is something i string through the book and i think or i hope comes through is that what americans saw and i presumably in new zealand and australia and, <laughs> and all over the world uh south america what people saw in that moment when the wall came down, they saw Germans coming together. They saw people sitting on the wall, standing and dancing with champagne and total euphoria. By the time I got there, uh, it was a couple months later, and I think the euphoria had started to wear off a little bit, and and the reality was setting in. Um, the the mood of the East Germans, I think, was I was astounded that it wasn't so much about freedom and being able to, to speak out against government or to be able to vote in free elections. To me, what really came across as a driving force for the East Germans was was the economy, mm-hmm. the, the ability to buy Western goods, the ability to travel, um, the ability to you know, so that is a form of freedom, but it was it was heavily an economic freedom uh, and an economic liberation that I think they were looking at, um, and that surprised me. Um, and then, of course, on the on the West German side, you had the reality was, okay, now we've got to absorb these people who are ostensibly our our brethren, um, and so it. I, I, I think by the time I got there, the mood was a, a real strange mix of excitement and and complexity and concern and logistics. How is this whole thing going to work? Um, and, of course, East Germany still was its own country, mm-hmm. and there were uh, they had to have a national election to decide what what direction they wanted to head. Mm-hmm. And the election is a big is a big part of the the early section of the book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, you, you go to various East German uh, towns where uh, members of the CDU and the SPD and these other uh, political parties are, are stumping, and uh, how do the East Germans react to this, Cause since they haven't really ever seen electoral politics before? Yeah. Well, again, it was, it was interesting, and, and I think a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, are, are heavily academic historians, and uh, this book is very anecdotal, and um, all the better. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, looking at your website and the, the purpose for 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 your your historical center is to provide a context, and I think this adds a nice little dimension of of I think humanity to what went on, you know, historically. Mm-hmm. It's a very street level account, and I talk to hundreds, if not thousands, of of East Germans every day. It seemed like, and uh, the election was a lot of them i don't think understood it you know it was the first time in their lives they could vote freely in an election Mm -hmm. you know they were told they had they could vote in free elections before but they they, it was obvious they didn't Um, and what was fascinating was it was a it would it would be like uh what would what would it be like um if if Canada had been a part of the United States a long time ago, mm-hmm. and suddenly 
the Canadians could vote to to uh, uh, become, uh, you know, the 51st state. They were going to vote on their government, and that our that our Republican and Democratic political parties went into Canada yeah. and funded the whole campaign, and we had. Obama and, you know, uh, uh, all the Republicans and Democrats going into Canada and campaigning. That's really what it was like. You had Helmut Kohl, the chancellor. You had all the, all the, all the political parties going into East Germany campaigning for their straw people. They set up their parties inside. There was very little organic uh, um, political uh, um, development of the parties, you were looking at an uh, almost like a microwaved version of democracy, mm-hmm. and uh, um, you know you had the Communist Party, which was there to begin with, and outside of that, I, I and you had uh, a group called New Forum, Neues Forum, and uh, uh, they had formed some coalitions, but it was really a juggernaut from the West. Mm-hmm. And the, a little funny anecdote, um, I had some of the the political flyers and leaflets that had been handed out by the um, CDU, and I was, I think I was in Leipzig or Dresden, and I was, was showing them to some of the East Germans, and they looked at me and they said, these weren't printed here. <laughs> we don't have this quality paper. <laughs> we can't get this kind of color. Yeah. This is not from here. And so, uh, again, back to the U.S.-Canada um, example, it would be as if all the flyers and everything yeah. had been printed uh, uh, in the West. And, and so that was fascinating to me is that it was, in some ways, it was a takeover by the, by the West. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very strong power play. Um, and the East Germans I talked to who – and, you know, honestly, most of these Germans seem to be fine with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was there any – you know, you mentioned the uh, German Communist Party, uh, which obviously had ruled Germany, uh, at least in name, for uh, many decades by then. Did they, uh, did they uh, mount any sort of campaign themselves? Yeah, they had a, um, they had a, uh, a, a group that, uh, that formed um, and – you know, with some of their, I believe it was Gregor Gysi, who was the uh, uh, the head of that party. Um, what was what was interesting is they did very well in in East Berlin, which was obviously the capital of of uh, 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 the, the the federal government there. And so you had a lot of a lot of government. Well, I, I guess technically everybody's a government worker, but mm-hmm. the 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 hardcore communists. Uh, members were in Berlin, and they actually did a little bit better in Berlin. Um, and ironically, uh, if people, I'm sure people have lived in Germany and, and the Germans themselves. I mean, there's a very, I think, proud and uh, rich tradition of protest among um, West German students and um, West Germans in general, um, of the, more on the younger generation. And I was astounded at some of the political campaigning in West Berlin for communism. Mm-hmm. It just seemed very surreal to me that, mm-hmm. you know, it was so evident traveling through East Germany that the country was broken, the people were broken, um, the system was broken, and, you know, what they were moving to and how they moved to it, I think, was was a very much a subject of, of debate and interest. Um, but the fact that, you know, I think it was irrefutable that the system didn't work. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think, I, I think that's right. I was actually in the Soviet Union uh, as it became Russia or the Russian Federation in 19, uh, let's see, 91, 92. I was there for that. And, and I saw many of the same things that you saw in the sense that I guess I would say there were just certain parallels when these communist systems uh, come undone, the same kinds of things happen. At least I noticed some of the things that you noticed. What One example was, and I'll just run through some quick ones and ask you to talk about them. One of the things that amazed me in, the, uh, in Russia in 1990-91 was the fact that everybody was selling everything. People would just stand out on street corners, markets would form, and people would just sell anything that they mm-hmm. had. And you saw that, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, why don't you talk a little bit about this? 
Yeah, well, there were kind of two levels of that. One was in East Germany itself. Um, you had, you, you actually had a lot of the, you know, suddenly you had a new market for uh, for West Germany, and you had, for example, uh, in Leipzig, the city square had uh, uh, all sorts of, of products and, and booths that had been set up. Um, you know, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were there. Um, you know, I remember Michael Jackson was big back then, and, <laughs> and, and he was, he transcended. I mean, it's kind of interesting. He, you can say what you want about him, his lifestyle, his music or whatever, but he, he was, he really transcended uh, geographic and political boundaries, and mm -hmm. he was huge over there. Mm -hmm. uh, but I remember, uh, you know, all the West German newspapers were there trying to, you know, they saw a new market there for him, I think, and, and uh, had set up shop. Um, they couldn't, the East Germans couldn't believe that they could select from, you know, 10 newspapers, 15 newspapers, mm -hmm. um, instead of just the communist rag. Um, the, I was in one line, um, one of my favorite little stories is I'm in this very long line. They call them Schlanges, uh, which is for, it's like a snake, a long mm -hmm. line. And uh, everybody was just, you know, you had everything from senior citizens to young kids. But I'm thinking it's, I don't know, some great kind of chocolate or entertainment device or, you know, <laughs> video game or something. And I get to the front, and it's uh, uh, it's some pornographic material for, you know, kind of soft porn, um, you know, like lingerie and stuff like that. <laughs> and the East Germans were just, they just couldn't believe it, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, uh, so I think they, they were really hit. Um, so there was a lot of selling in East Germany of Western goods, and products, and then on the in in, in uh, West Germany, you had uh, uh, probably my, one of my favorite stories in the whole book is um, I met some kids from East Germany uh, that were selling pieces of the wall to Westerners for Western currency, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, there were, and there was another gentleman who actually had I think quit his job and had was selling the wall full time, mm -hmm. and. What was so significant about that is you could make hard currency, you could sell them for for Deutschmarks, go back into East Germany and and trade the, you know the marks basically were, you know at, depending on the time you know a five to one six to one, uh, uh, East German marks to West and so you could live like a king if you had West Western currency, mm -hmm. and uh, so I think for that reason a lot of a lot of the East Germans that I met around the wall were selling chunks of the wall. Mm -hmm. And I even saw some kids spray painting little chunks of the wall um, in an effort. Or they weren't even chunks of the wall. I think they were just rocks they were finding on the ground uh, that they were spray painting and trying to sell them to, to, to tourists. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, this is something I saw, too, uh, that is, in addition to these in Russia, in Russian, they're called Talkuchki, these little markets that would form. And another thing that I experienced when I was there is the um, decline of the ruble and tons of speculation in foreign currency. And we, and you, you actually quote some prices, you know, you could buy an entire meal for three bucks, a really nice meal. And that was true in 91 in Moscow when we were there. Uh, you know, we, we really, uh, we had dollars and we could exchange them you know, right in front of the Kremlin, basically, in, mm -hmm. in the open air with, uh, yeah. with, 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 with currency traders, because there were lots of arbitrage possibilities. You could trade, uh, you could trade dollars for rubles, and then you could take the rubles and buy something and then sell them again for dollars, and you could always come out on the plus side. But, that, yeah, that's something that we experienced as, yeah. as well. And, I mean, it was sad in a way because I saw people's savings. And, you know, Soviet people did have savings, and I'm sure East Germans did too. I saw mm -hmm. their savings wiped out, uh, mm -hmm. you know, almost overnight. And, yeah. you know, that was an extremely... Well, and I think that's why the, the, the currency reform, there was really a lot of pressure to do a one-for-one, -one, you know, trade with the, when, they be, when they did unify. Um, and I'm a little less familiar with the actual unification um, as opposed to the, the period between... Reunification and or the wall coming down and reunification, mm -hmm. and that's really the focus of the book is that sliver of time between those two two big events. Um, the other thing I wanted to to uh, to talk about briefly, if you don't mind, um, on the economic front, uh, 
uh, and the, the trading, it, it, it certainly was like the Wild West. I mean, there was a lot of wheeling and dealing, and, you know, the police kind of turned their heads the other way when they saw, you know, black currency trading going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but a very interesting thing to me was, uh, and I, I wrote a whole story on it when I was over there, and it's, it, it features, I think, fairly prominently in the book, was it wasn't like the West Germans were, you know, helping the East Germans understand uh, or giving them tutorials in uh, in the free market. Um, the East, many East Germans, I think, had to learn the hard way. They weren't used to credit cards and buying things on credit. Mm-hmm. They weren't used to having a million choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't used to uh, putting money down on something. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a psychiatrist that I interviewed, who dealt with a lot of uh, a lot of East Germans who were trying to make the transition to to a Western, you know, society, she said, "Look, we've been deformed." Mm-hmm. And the the classic example to me is uh, there were flyers that went out warning people about buying. They called it. Uh, um, uh, and cuts uh, 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 which is we say pig in a poke in in English, mm-hmm. uh, and they call it a cat in a sack. You wouldn't buy a cat in a sack. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, a lot of uh, there were a lot of stories of East Germans being hoodwinked by Westerners and taken you know taken to the cleaners. Mm-hmm. Um, and the example that that jumps out at me even 20 years later is uh, there was a story about. Everybody wanted a Mercedes, <laughs> yeah. And and uh, there was a story about somebody who went to look and test drive a Mercedes from a West German, a used one. And the person, the West German, said, "Okay, give me X amount of dollars now. We'll meet tomorrow, or not dollars, but uh, marks." Marks, yeah. Marks. Give those to me now. So you know, pay me two, three thousand Deutschmarks now. Come back and bring the rest to me tomorrow, and I'll have the car waiting for you. Well, guess what? Yeah. The person never shows up with the car, and he walks away with right. you know, 3,000 Deutschmarks, uh, and this poor East German has been suckered. And so there were, there were countless stories like that um, mm-hmm. taking place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I I experienced many things. Well, not many things, but some things like this in '91 when I was in in the East. Um, tell us, if you will. I, I also another thing that that struck me was just the weirdness of the place. And mm-hmm. again, this is I'm speaking about the Soviet Union here, but I'm, I think I found some of it in your book as well. The weirdness of these transitions. And I, one of the anecdotes I particularly like was the anecdote about kangaroo soup. Can oh, right. you tell us about kangaroo right. soup? Yeah, I know. I I uh, I was. You just are left scratching your head at, at things <laughs> that took place in a communist society. Um, and one of them was I'm in a restaurant, and it was in East Berlin, I believe, and uh, kangaroo soup was on the menu. And I'm, I'm thinking, what, what is that all about? I've got to try it, right? <laughs> and it was just, I think, some brown water with a little uh, little flecks of meat, you know, and and – I complained, and she was the the waitress was very indignant. I'm like, "Are you sure this is kangaroo?" And she was certain it was, but I, to me, it looked like uh, I don't know some shaved pieces of beef or something. And <laughs> uh, since you have a worldwide audience, I would love to know from the Australians or New Zealanders yeah. if any uh, any any uh, uh, any historical proof that the kangaroo soup in a can was something ever sent to. Uh, the East German. <laughs> yeah, well, so please, those of you in uh, New Zealand and Australia or wherever there are kangaroos, and uh, you please uh, write me and tell me, and I'll, I'll pass on uh, your uh, your uh, um, your yeah. understanding of the thing to Stephen. Yeah. So the other thing that was really bizarre was just the utter lack of, of customer service, um, and, and I think anybody who's been to a communist country gets that. You know, you want one loaf of bread, you get one loaf of bread. And a German, you know, you don't you don't get to choose, and they don't really care if you're happy or not. And um, it was funny to be over there knowing that the whole world was transforming, and you'd see people who were just – you could just tell they weren't going to function well in this mm-hmm. new society. They weren't going to make that transition. Um, and 
just very peculiar rules too. Like I remember being in a grocery store in in uh, East Berlin, and the person got all bent out of shape that I wasn't pushing a cart. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I just wanted to buy I think a bar of chocolate or a six pack <laughs> of beer or something. And, yeah. Um, but they they definitely had their rules and and um, yeah. You know that's not that's not just East Germany. You know I think Germany as a whole you know can be very you know, very focused, at least yeah. the older generation. On. Yeah, you, you mentioned one of the things that I think every American who goes to Germany notices immediately, and that is that Germans don't cross against the light, mm-hmm. even when there's no traffic. Which right. Every American I've ever met who's been to Germany, oh, I, it's the weirdest yeah, thing I've ever seen. I, I think I still have burns in my back from the, the glares I've received <laughs> yeah. from doing that. Yeah. But I think, I think that mindset in a lot of ways is even more pronounced, or was even more pronounced in, in, in East Germany. Um, and, you know, it, it, you talk about, uh, you know, looking back on it, I mean, there was something very endearing about the East German people, not the government, not the uh, uh, the economy, but the people themselves were really, really solid, really. I, I met so many nice, thoughtful, intelligent, and humorous people. Um, I met a guy in a Cuban restaurant uh, with his girlfriend, and he was a younger guy, and he says he was he said he was graduating from uh, college. He was in Leipzig, and uh, I like, what did you major in? He said, uh, centrally planned economy. Yeah. And he just laughed. He's like, what am I going to do with that? You know. So I think there was a a, a sense of uh, a, a huge sense of irony. Um, and and I think a lot of people had to chuckle, and even though they were probably hurting at the same time a lot, I think I think there was a a real sense that a lot of, especially with the older generation, that that they had they'd really spent their life living on a pile of lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I found that same thing in in the Soviet Union at the time. People had. Uh, you know, they were resentful uh, because they had really invested a lot in in the system, and, and they had believed in it um, when it was failing, and they had given it given it second, third, fourth, and fifth chances. And then to see it all come undone like that, especially so suddenly, uh, was I think to a, a shock to, to many really well-meaning people. I mean, I I knew people in the Soviet Union who joined the party the year before the party ceased to exist, basically, and, and they, were, they were very nice people. And, they, you know, they, they really were very accomplished, and I'm thinking of one woman in particular. She was really a good person and, and, and really cared about uh, the Soviet Union and wanted to work. To, she wasn't a careerist or anything like that, and, you know, she was absolutely bewildered when yeah. basically the whole thing went pear-shaped overnight. Let me, yeah. ask, let me ask you to tell, uh, uh, tell a story of, uh, I believe it's a taxi driver, um, and you have a he he, he tells it he gets well you can tell the story it's the story of the joke, right? Um, and I believe Milan uh, Kundera wrote a whole book on the joke, which is you know people who uh, you know about somebody or, or you know telling a joke about a communist leader uh, could end you uh, or end you up in in prison. Um, and I had a, a taxi driver in, I believe it was Dresden, and he was driving me around. And uh, uh, they call them Schwartz taxis, you know, which yeah. is, is just not an official cab, but you make a deal with a guy with a car, and he says, hey, I'll show you around the city. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember very distinctly we negotiated on the front end as to the terms of our of payment. And... Uh, I remember specifically saying I'd pay you in East German marks, and uh, anyway, that, that figures into the story. But uh, he's driving me around, showing me Dresden, and um, uh, telling me at the same time about how he ended up in jail for telling a joke um, with some coworkers, and somebody ratted on him, and he ended up in prison. And it was a very compelling story. And then at the very end, you know, he really, he was really pulling on my heartstrings. And then when the, the, the drive was over and I went to pay him, he, he kind of went ballistic because I gave him East German marks. <laughs> and uh, so I, I acquiesced and gave him uh, uh, the, the Deutschmark uh, payment. And, I, you know, I end that little chapter talking about how he, 
you know, the joke was really on me. I think right. he, I think he played me like a fiddle. I think he did, uh, and I've been played uh, like that in, in the Soviet Union as well. But you don't give yourself enough credit. I mean, it, 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 the way you explain it in the book, and I'm sure it's true, is that you opened your wallet and basically gave him all your money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, yeah. You know, there, there are people that. Uh, you know, you really, you really felt for the people, um, and and um, you know, I, I, you knew they were onto a better life and a better society, hopefully. Uh-huh. But um, the transition is what this book is all about. It's about that window of time between the whole world seeing these happy champagne drinking Germans all getting together and reunification, and um, that period in between is. To me, very pivotal, and it's very full of drama and human emotion, and the clash of of West and East uh, uh, it could not be stronger than in in Germany mm-hmm. at that time, um, at, at that moment in time, and that to me is where all the richness and texture, and um, I hope a little bit of insight. Uh, is provided by the book to to augment and complement, you know, what everything what what else has been written, um, you know, by more more uh, preeminent historians than than me. No, no, no. It certainly does. No, these things are are very valuable. You can uh, you can learn a lot from a simple uh, anecdote that you can't um, learn from a formal academic book. I, I want you to talk about this is again another parallel with the Soviet experience. I'd I'd like you to talk about interviewing people who are thinking about whether they should change the name of their city from Karl Marxstadt to Chemnitz yeah. or not. Yeah. Well, you know, Cal- I live in California, and there's a city here called City of Industry. Mm-hmm. And to me, Karl Marxstadt was kind of like City of Industry. It was kind <laughs> of a, a bland, predictable, you know, kind of inappropriate, especially that time of, of uh, that time in history. But you had a, uh, a city that had been – they'd taken the, – when the communists t- took over, they renamed the city from Chemnitz to um, Karl Marxstadt. And um, I think this is really a beautiful uh, little vignette of, of how the democracy in, in, in this fledgling uh, uh, period – or fledgling uh, uh, democracy actually worked. Um, the folks in the city got together and they had an, uh, a ballot initiative um, to. Uh, this was back, I believe, in um, in April of 1990. They had a, uh, uh, a a referendum on whether or not to change the city city's name from Karl Marx to. Uh, uh, back to its original name, Chemnitz, um, and, and you think of all the names, you know, like Ho Chi, Ho Chi Minh City. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even even places like Beijing have been, have uh, you know used to be Peking, and but this had such a, a strong visceral um, uh, political charge about it that uh, you know I think the people really felt like this is something we can control. We can take the name back of our city. And erase this this communist stamp on our our city, and uh, the vote itself was uh, uh, about 75, 70, I think 76 percent uh, to restore the old name, mm-hmm. and so it was a real clear mandate uh, to uh, you know to go back to to get rid of communism and this symbol of communism. So mm-hmm. um, uh, it was a fascinating little little. Um, piece of, of what was going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the things that uh, Bear is pointing out, as you do in the book, is that uh, uh, Marx didn't really ever have anything to do with uh, the city that uh, at one time bore his name. He was, he like was he a was, Rhinelander, really, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, I believe he was born in Trier. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and so, yeah, it, it, was, it was really an alien name being, being foisted on, you know, it would be like us uh, going into Havana and calling it... Uh, you know, Washington. Yeah, right, exactly. Another thing I wanted you to talk about was, um, and this is something of particular interest to me, I, I spent some time in Germany and actually lived with a family that was from uh, territories that are now um, Poland. They were from East Prussia, and East Prussia doesn't exist anymore. Old Prussia doesn't exist anymore, I think. Um, and you spend some time with some people from 
uh, Gdansk or Danzig. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And for those of you who don't know among our listeners, th this was the uh, area of, um, of, of eastern Germany that was uh, given to Poland in 1945, and all of the German residents, some millions of them, were uh, forcibly moved into uh, Germany proper. So anyway, why don't you talk a little bit about uh, these people that you met from Gdańsk? Yeah, well, there's, um, you know, Poland figures in so prominently in the history of Germany. It's so, they're so intertwined. Um, but on Easter uh, Sunday, <clears throat> I had met, along with a, a reporter from Ireland, a, a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, if there's anybody from Ireland listening, I'd love to <laughs> know where he's ended up, and hopefully he's still alive, a guy named Fergus Pyle. Okay. He's right for the Irish Times. Uh -huh. So listeners, find Fergus Pyle and contact me, okay? Yeah, I mean, he's just a wonderful travel companion. He was, you know, senior to me and um, really, you know, it was nice being with a seasoned journalist like him. Um, but we, we uh, uh, went to a, an Easter Mass in East Germany, and, uh, or West Germany, uh, West Berlin, and met a couple women from... Uh, uh, you know, who it turned out were very wealthy. We ended up going. They invited us back to their house for coffee and uh, and and uh, uh, you know some whiskey. And, uh, and we obviously had fooled them that we were somehow legitimate professional good <laughs> good gentlemen. But uh, they invited us in, and they were they were older women, and they proceeded to tell us they were originally from um, uh, Danzig, you know, which is Gdansk. Mm -hmm. um, home of solidarity in Lech Valenza, and, uh, you know, that they had been driven from that area after the war, um, and uh, I guess they had, they had owned uh, sugar and flour, factory, flour processing factories in, uh, in Warsaw and, and uh, Danzig, and, um, you know, they ended up having to flee after the war, so they lost everything. Mm -hmm. um, but we're very proud of remaining, um, you know, Prussians mm -hmm. is more how they thought of themselves. Um, but that really uh, was a kind of a nice jumping off point into, you know, going to explore Poland. It's the one time and, and one, one piece of the book that, that uh, strays away from Germany. Mm -hmm. Why don't you talk a little bit about your time in Poland? Yeah. Um, it was probably the longest day trip I've ever, or actually the day trip uh, I've ever spent in my life. Fergus Pyle had a uh, a really state-of-the-art slick car. It was a Citroen, French Citroen, and uh, we headed off to Gdansk, and we thought that there might be something interesting about uh, the revolution that had taken place, uh, uh, you know, at the the shipyards in, in Gdansk. Uh, and to see if there were – we were fishing for stories, basically, mm -hmm. um, and thought there might be some interesting stuff up there. Um, we uh, – uh, first of all, Poland is a beautiful country. I had no idea how beautiful it was, and we were there in the springtime, and uh, they have these fields of, of – I believe it's called rape. It's, a, it's a, a yellow plant, and it was just this beautiful, uh, vivid – countryside um, and uh, we I, I can't recall anything of major historical value that we came across but mm -hmm. on a personal level we had some very interesting kind of funny things take place um, that, that I share in the book um, one of which we're pulled over for speeding <laughs> yeah, right. and it's clear that the Polish police want us to 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 give them money so that they won't give us a ticket and so we give them some money, and they say, no, that's not enough. So then we we give them a lot more, and they say, no, that's too much. And they basically <laughs> took our money and counted out what was an appropriate bribe <laughs> and handed us back the rest of the money, and we, we just laughed the whole way back. Yeah, that, that is that, <laughs> that one. Yeah, no, that's, I've experienced things like this uh, as well. Um, you talk a little bit about the way the East Germans understood the Holocaust or did not understand it, because at that time, East German 
uh, or West German television was was being shown freely in East Germany all of a sudden. Now, it had always been sort of available, but it had been blocked. And I think that they were showing a show about the Holocaust called Genocide or something like this. And right. Yeah. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the way the, the East Germans understood this television show. Yeah. Um, this was a great assignment I got from a guy named Roy Gutman, who has won a Pulitzer uh, for his work. Actually, he wrote a, a book, I believe, called Genocide about... Uh, Bosnia and the, the death camps that, that had taken place in that part of the world. Um, and he was the European bureau chief for Newsday out of New York, and he was based in Bonn, and he needed somebody in Berlin and East Germany to help, you know, get get stories uh, that he couldn't physically be there for. And one of them was this, uh, they were, they were going to have the airing of genocide, which I believe won an Oscar or, I mean, it was... Uh, yeah, whatever uh, they win, I don't know. Yeah, and uh, it was, an, I believe, an American film, mm -hmm. and it was going to be airing for the first time in East Germany. And uh, uh, he had run into, he had the name of somebody that he met the night the wall came down, and uh, I ended up watching the, the movie at their house mm -hmm. with this family. And what was fascinating is they... They had named all their kids, uh, uh, even though they weren't Jewish, I believe they were Catholic, they had given all their kids Jewish names, mm -hmm. first names, uh, to, um, I think, kind of out of respect for what had happened mm. historically to, to, to the Jews in Germany. Mm. Um, and what was interesting is they, they said that in the, in the girls, actually, they had some teenage girls, and they, they brought out their history books. And what was fascinating is... Um, the atrocities committed by the Nazis from the viewpoint of the, the Soviets was how they went after the communists mm -hmm. and, um, and, and the leftists. Um, it was the fascists against the communists. It wasn't, you know, this, this tyrant who had destroyed, you know, or, or, or tried to destroy the Jewish population. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the atrocities of the Holocaust really had been had been buried mm -hmm. um, uh, largely by by the Soviet-dominated um, paradigm, mm -hmm. because the emphasis was on, you know, that, that Hitler was a counterpoint to communism. It wasn't mm -hmm. it wasn't a Jewish issue. So there, the sense I got from that, you know, and. Again, I, I don't want to extrapolate that the whole society thought that based on this one, this one uh, 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 interview or several interviews I had, but it was really clear that they hadn't seen or, or been exposed to the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, watching this with this family was was really incredibly insightful and and compelling to see how much their worldview had either been uh, filtered or or uh, uh, shaped or deformed or warped mm -hmm. to think a certain way and and to not be exposed to other aspects of history mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that a whole that a whole country could do that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in a pre-internet age that was easy it's going to be a little it would be a little harder now and yeah. Yeah. i don't know how china's doing it yeah, i don't well i don't think they're doing it very well and i agree with you that they won't be able to do it effectively but i found exactly the same thing in the soviet union i mean people had a kind of vague street level awareness of the uh, anti-semitism the virulent anti-semitism of the nazis but again the uh the battle against uh, the 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 Germans in the Second World War was was pitched as one of fascism against communism, and, and atrocities were uh, against uh, any population were deemed to be atrocities against communist yeah. populations, and and uh, you know that was the story that they they wanted to tell. But it wasn't in the Soviet case; it wasn't the story that everybody understood. I mean, everyone right. kind of knew that that this wasn't really the whole truth, and and I don't think yeah. it was any great revelation, at least to my friends in the Soviet Union, when they learned that. Um, in fact, there was, uh, you know, a genocidal campaign against the Jews that wasn't exactly unknown. Another thing that you did, uh, another parallel experience, I, when I was in the Soviet Union in, in 1980-something, I don't remember, I was in, actually, I was in Kiev in, in Ukraine, and uh, I, I, uh, I had friends that lived near the Babiar massacre site, and if you don't know what that is, basically it's uh, the, um, the, the, the Germans... Uh, Einsatzgruppen had uh, murdered some, I think, 30,000 
uh, uh, Jewish and um, Ukrainian citizens uh, in a ravine in, in Kiev, and, and there it was being uh, it was being excavated as part of a building project. They were building a radio station, and, and I I went there and. The, the place was completely covered with with human remains. It was really quite quite moving. I'd read about Babiar. I did, you know, I did, it, and it wasn't. There is a monument at Babiar to 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 the victims, and again, it says it doesn't really mention Jews specifically, but uh, yeah, communists. So, but then you you also visit a a, a mass grave. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, um, one of the things that ha- that happened, um, and it, it, it's easily the most indelible memory I have of the time I spent over there was um, there were these little stories popping up of mass graves being discovered throughout the East German countryside. And uh, they were the graves of Nazi soldiers. Mm -hmm. And as everybody knows, when the Russians came in, it was a whole, you know, it was a whole different ball game. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I was at a place called Fonteiken, which is five oaks. It was, uh, up in the northeastern part of uh, East Germany, uh, in, in the um, uh, Neubrandenburg um, area, and uh, again, I was with Fergus Pyle uh, with the Irish Times, and we drove out there, and there was rumored to be a mass grave out in in this forest, and um, we went up there and ran into a man, uh, probably in his 60s maybe early 70s. Uh, I'd, I'd have to do the math here, but um, he was an older gentleman, and we started asking him about the graves. We hadn't seen them yet, but we uh, were talking to him, and he he said that uh, he was at a concentration camp that was nearby. He was a young boy, I think of 11 or 12, and was, you know, towards the end of the war, the Germans were grabbing any body that was nearby and throwing him into a uniform. Mm-hmm. But it's hardly as if he was a a, a Nazi believer. He was mm-hmm. just some kid, you know, and they threw a uniform on him, and the Russians came in, and he got thrown in a concentration camp. Um, and then he proceeded to tell us what it was like there, and he lost many of his friends in the concentration camp, and then also um, the Germans that had, had, had died presumably during the war. But... Um, the mass graves were largely of people who died, you know, after the war in this concentration camp, mm-hmm. you know, the elderly and the young that didn't survive. Mm-hmm. And um, he, the more we talked to him, you know, the more he kind of opened up with us and he, he shared how, you know, his whole life had, he said, uh, we were the shat upon generation. Mm-hmm. And he started to cry. He was with his wife and their dog, and he starts to weep. And uh, it was just an incredibly sad moment because the way he articulated it was, you know, everything he believed in or didn't even believe in, but everything he was told to believe in uh, had turned out to be a big lie. He, Mm -hmm. you know, he grew up with Hitler, you know, in charge, and, you know, that ends him up in a concentration camp. He, you know, gets out and and uh, is a little bit ostracized for a while because he was considered a not, you know, a Nazi, mm-hmm. and so starts to get his life back uh, and and have a, some semblance of normalcy in, in the communist society, and then, uh, you know, here he is in as the twilight of his years, and and the whole thing comes down, crashing down, and all the, you know, uh, all the you know the state secrets, the spying on the public, the you know the corruption and mm-hmm. at the higher levels, all that stuff starts coming out, and he just started to cry, mm-hmm. and um, it was it was an incredibly poignant and insightful experience for me because it, you know, I think growing up in in the West, you tend to say, well, the Nazis they're all bad, mm-hmm. you know, they were all this. Well, you kind of forget that. Uh, and the cover of the book is actually of the gravesite that I saw. Mm-hmm. Um, I should have made a notation of that, but uh, that's that's one of the mass graves that we saw. And all these relatives were going to find their relatives, and to, they never could bring closure to to people that had died. Mm-hmm. And they weren't fighting, 
you know, uh, uh, they, these were these were kind of innocent people that had been caught up in World War II mm-hmm. on the German side, and um, it was just an incredibly tragic, sad, uh, unexpected experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a, I had a, a couple of experiences like that in the Soviet Union, and actually the 1980s, where. Um, people were really sort of despondent about the way things were going, and they didn't feel they could change, and they felt they had been lied to. They had worked very hard in a cause that proved to be corrupt, and I, I did have at least uh, I did have similar sorts of experiences, and they, they were very, very moving. I should also say about the mass graves, they are really being discovered. I think discovered should be in quotes. They're being uncovered all the time. There was one recently discovered in... Uh, Czechoslovakia and the old Sudeten territories. Um, and in this instance, if I recall correctly, and maybe one of the listeners can correct me, um, that it was German civilians who had been killed by Czechs uh, as the Russians came in. And there were lots of atrocities. Uh, well, there were atrocities both in 1939 when the Germans came, and then there were atrocities uh, in 1945 when the Russians kicked them out. And, and there, were, there were plenty of atrocities to go around. And so I think there are a lot of... Um, buried and unquiet bodies all over this area um, and, and people only now can kind of begin to, to, to face exactly what happened because it was ethnic cleansing on a scale that I don't think we've ever seen yeah. at least in modern times um, and, yeah. and it's something that has never really gotten very much press particularly on the German side because you know it was thought to be a little bit distasteful to mention it um, yeah, and it, I was going to say there are several good books now about what happened to the Germans uh, in, in the closing months of, of the war, and it was truly horrendous. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah and, and the interesting thing about that is, um, you know, I think that period of, of, of history is so black and white in many ways um, that to encounter this nuance, you know, the Germans at that time of, you know, when you talk about that period of history, there, there's not a lot of sympathy Mm-mm. or um, uh you know, compassion mm-hmm. you know, for for Germany uh, for that time of year or for the time in history. And so I was kind of surprised that I was actually feeling, you know, sorry for somebody who has yeah. grown up in that, that, that period. And, and um, you're right. It's, it's, uh, it's an interesting, interesting little dimension to, to this that, uh, Again, was was totally unexpected and really, really told me that there's, there's a lot more going on here than I think the rest of the world was seeing. Yeah, no, I mean I think you're right, and we should thank you for for bringing the story to us. Um, and Stephen, we've taken up a heck of a lot of your time, and I really appreciate it. Why don't uh, we close the interview um, uh, by having you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? Yeah, um, I, I appreciate that. Um, before before I do that, I just wanted to. Uh, Again, thank you for for having me on. And um, uh, something that you had said earlier, uh, uh, I I wanted to kind of come back to because it triggered something. Is that you know, early on when I was there, uh, there had had been a uh, a cartoon that I saw in one of the Western magazines, and there were three three bathrooms, and uh, one of them said Mena. Frauen and Ossis, <laughs> and uh, you know, basically there were three bathroom, you know, assigned yeah. women, men, and um, and e- Easterners. Easterners, yeah. Um, and uh, so anyway, I hope the book, in some way, you know, creates a human element to this, and uh, kind of what a John Hershey did with mm-hmm. Hiroshima. Yeah. Uh, and I'm hoping that it'll uh, add a little bit of of color and 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 uh, humanity to what was going on over there. Um, as far as what I'm working on now, I uh, I do a lot of work uh, around state politics in California. Uh, I'm a recovering journalist. I still deal with a lot of <laughs> a lot of media in my day-to-day job. I have a political blog about California politics and um, media. Uh, it's called CalBlueDog.com, and uh, I'm working on a book uh, for the future about um, really how. Emotion is driving American policy mm-hmm. and politics, and uh, um, I think we're 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 leaving the enlightened age and going back to a more visceral approach to mm-hmm. to problem solving. And I think California is really, um, you know, the 
the center of where this is all happening. I'm, I'm seeing it every day in my job, and uh, I'm fascinated by uh, how emotion will will uh, trump stats and, uh, and statistics mm -hmm. in, the, in the political world. Mm -hmm. No, I, uh, yes, no, I, I fight this every day as a university teacher, and from your lips to God's, or rather Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, ears, you guys have a lot, to, a, a lot of work to do in California. <laughs> <laughs> we, we sure do. Yeah, it's funny being here in Iowa and then sort of hearing about California's problems because the dimensions are, you know, we deal with uh, budget shortfalls that are in the, you know, two and three million range, and yeah. your budget shortfalls are in billions. Uh, we, have, <laughs> we have, we have, uh, billion-dollar shortfalls, and um, I, I, this might be a good way to tie this all together. When I first started working in Cal – I worked in the California State Capitol, and um, there was a joke. And I started in, in – uh, when I got back from Germany, uh, I started here in 1991, and there was a joke that um, all the bureaucrats from the Soviet Union and East <laughs> Germany – had all ended up in California government. <laughs> I hadn't heard that, but uh, so uh, yeah, I, I believe that to be true. Well, anyway, Stephen. Well, and, and that's actually kind of an interesting thing. Is is it's probably a subject for another guest in another time. But they're really, uh, you know, we see government right now being so involved in our society and economy. You know, and as a counterpoint, twenty years ago, we were seeing. How government had really screwed it up. So it's yeah. just kind of an interesting. Well, a, I'm not trying to make a statement, but it's just an interesting counterpoint to everything we're seeing in our own society right now. Yeah. No, I'll make a statement. Really big government doesn't work very well. <laughs> there, I said it for you. I don't know if you meant yeah. that, but I uh, having you know, I mean, I kind of went over to the Soviet Union as a as a, as a liberal Democrat, and I came back. Let's just say something else. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to say so. I'm not going to yeah, say real, what it's else. It's a real eye opener. Yeah, it man. really is. It really is. There's, so, there's definitely a role for government, but I think. Yeah. Uh, Roman Ghostland is a little bit of a cautionary tale. Yeah, I do. You're absolutely right. Well, Stephen Allen, um, thank you very much for being on the show. I should tell our listeners we've been talking to Stephen Allen, and he's the author of Roman Ghostland, The Final Days of East Germany. I hope that you go out and pick up the book, and um, I enjoyed it very much. Steve, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. It was a, it was a real pleasure. I appreciate it. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Stephen Allen, the author of Roaming Ghostland, The Final Days of East Germany. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. <laughs>